This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. Tonight's sponsor is Invoca. Invoca's AI-powered call tracking and analytics platform helps marketers make better decisions by gathering data before a call and during a call. If you have a call center or your company is gathering data from phone calls in any way, form, or fashion, you should, you should be informed about what Invoca is doing. If you're thinking about employment opportunities, Invoca just raised a, a substantial amount of money. They just publicly announced that, and they are growing like a weed. So if you want to learn a little bit more about working in Invoca, hang around after our interview, and we'll have a short video about life at Invoca if you're interested. Tonight, I'm interviewing Craig Harris. Craig is a two-time founder and CEO. Craig has nearly 20 years of successful entrepreneurial leadership experiences. Before he, started, before he launched HG Insights, which is the company that he's currently uh, the chairman of the board of, he served as the founder and CEO of Noza, which he led through a successful acquisition by BlackBot in 2010. And BlackBot is a public company, so that was a nice, substantial exit. Craig took the weekend off, and literally the following Monday after he closed the deal on Friday, he and his team um, started HG Insights, where they built the world's most comprehensive and detailed census of technologies that companies use to run their business. What the hell does that mean? What it means is they have the world's largest database of tools that companies use to get their job done. And that database is extremely valuable to a lot, to a lot of different constituents. If you think about if you're trying to figure out where, where should I be applying my marketing dollars, what region, what focus, what market, what, what industry. Think about if you're um, wondering where your competitors are having success and maybe you're not. You can use Invoca's data, or excuse me, you can use HD's data to find the answers to those questions. And HD does this in an interesting way. It used to all be done manually. People would literally make phone calls and ask companies, how do you, you know, what tools are you using? What you, database are you using? What Craig and his team did is they created this AI tool that goes out and looks at billions of unstructured documents every single day to add to that database. You can imagine that database is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Craig recently retired. It's only been about a month, so he's newly retired, but he remains um, active as the company's chairman very involved in the board and on the high-level decisions. And before he started his for-profit entrepreneurial journey, Craig was actually a philanthropic entrepreneur. He spent time in the Peace Corps, which we'll talk about, and he also helped other nonprofits raise money because he found he had, a, he had a knack for that. Craig is alumni. He's an alumnus of here at UC Santa Barbara, and he was on the surfing team when he was here, so I'm going to ask him about that. Um, and it's funny because I've known Craig for a number of years. I've been in Santa Barbara quite a long time. And when Craig's name comes up locally, it's almost always quickly followed with, he's such a great guy. I mean, I, that, what, a, what a nice legacy to have when somebody mentions your name and then they say, God, Craig is such a nice guy. And he's really, he's, he's proof that you can be very successful in business. Um, you can grow multiple startups into substantial companies and make great environments for employees to come to work in every day. But you don't have to do that at, at the sacrifice of your personal life. So you can be successful personally, as Craig has been, and professionally um, while you're on that entrepreneurial journey. So it's great to have him before us. Let's welcome him to our class. How's it going? Good to see you. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, Craig, I was going to make a joke. I'm not going to. Uh, you grew up in Northern California. And Central California. Central. I call that Northern California. What do you mean? Well, if you count the part people of the state that, that nobody lives there. The Golden Gate Bridge. Nobody lives there. Considers people in San Jose to be Central California. Nobody so. lives there. So, <laughs> California ends in Oakland, essentially, right? <laughs> All right. So, you were. You were from North Central California when you, um, when you grew up. So, I wanna, I'd like to talk a little bit about growing up. What did you want to do? What was, your, what was your dream job when you were like 11 years old? What did you think you wanted to be? I don't think I ever <clears throat> contemplated that. that All right, when you were 12. When I was 12, probably at that point, a uh, professional baseball player. Baseball? Well, yes. that was my thing. <laughs> right? yeah, and you can see we're both like prime for that. We have some baseball players. We look like baseball players, right? Yeah, yeah. He was slow on that. <laughs> I was too slow. Um, so your dad, um, as I know him in, in, in the time that I've known you, is, a, is quite an entrepreneur, very successful in his own right. Was he entrepreneurial all through your growing up? No. In fact, um, you know, when I think about it, I don't, 
I don't really recall my dad being entrepreneurial until probably the mid '80s. Uh, oh, my okay. dad worked for uh, for 3M. He was a scientist and immunologist, and um, worked for a very small division. And uh, 3M informed my dad that they were going to sell off the division. Um, and so my dad decided uh, to go try to raise some money and, and buy it himself. Nice. And that's exactly what he And did. that was his first entrepreneurial His, act- his first, only, and, and last, really. Wow. Yeah. How old yeah. was he at that time? Uh, he would have been uh, about 42 years old wow. when he started that, yeah. That's, I mean, that's young, when you're as old as I am, but it's rel- relatively old to do it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I always viewed my dad as a scientist um, in, a, in a really good one. And so, you know, and when he decided to really take a big risk and put really the, the family's, you know, home right. and everything on the line, um, that was a real shocker. I didn't, I didn't know my dad had it in him. Um, in hindsight, I didn't know the first thing about, you know, being an entrepreneur, what that right. meant. But right. now it's really easy to look back on that to, to see, you know, there's that moment in time, I believe in my experience, there's that moment in time that aha moment when when entrepreneurs have that spark or they have the inspiration right and so um that that was really that aha moment for my dad how old were you when he did that uh i would have been probably 12 years old okay yeah so old enough to have good memories and i mean have clear memories of, of that. yeah of, of the good the good times and the bad times yeah, yeah. i mean i remember um one time i think i was a so- sophomore here at ucsb i was uh, 90 to 95 and i think it was 1992 I got a call from my parents saying, "Hey, you know, we, can you got can you pick up some more hours at work? Things mm. are pretty tight right now." Wow. Um, so I mean, I remember it wasn't always uh, it wasn't always roses. Never is, and I don't think it ever is. No, it no. never is. From the outside looking in, it's always, "Wow, how did that person do it?" Well, they did it with hard work and and twenty years of effort. Um, so, were there any lessons that you now that you can look back on your dad's career? Um, and he recently had a substantial exit. Congratulations yeah. to him. Um, are there things that you that you that he either said to you about business or that you just sort of learned from looking back on it? So, I, I think the obvious, you know, the the obvious one for me there is just um, the risk taking. You know, it's I'm I can't think of many examples of entrepreneurs that that didn't take some form of a big risk yeah. risk, whether it was um, quitting a job or mortgaging a home or you know, whatever it might have been. Right. Um, so that, that was probably lesson number one is it's okay to, to you know, make a big risk. Yep. Um, I think, again, in hindsight, the thing that, that's most um, poignant for me today and perhaps most helpful for, for the class is that my dad never talked about business. Mm-hmm. He, he never talked about um, starting a company or running a company or, um, you know, the, how much enjoyment he got out of it. it it was, or about the money or the potential for making money. Yep. It was always about the product. Nice. That's a hundred percent of his focus was building. He, he built um, laboratory tests for te- uh, to test for a variety of diseases. All he cared about was that he built the best product ever. And so, um, you know, very often I meet entrepreneurs, you know, even some in, from your classes that they're really excited about starting a company, but they don't have an idea yet. Um, so I think, again, using my dad's experience, um, being just um, absolutely fixated on solving a problem and doing it in a novel way, I think that was my dad's biggest lesson. Yeah, and he had, he had going for him this idea of make meaning. You know, so what he was doing was meaningful in the sense it was helping people that were possibly sick or keeping them from becoming sick. I think it's important. Like, if, it, it's hard to put in the effort and hours and energy anyway. And if you're not making meaning in some fashion that you could point to, it's harder to even get up. Yeah. You know, get up and go to work. So I, I like this story. Um, I remember you told me at one point when you were probably a young teenager. I'm assuming you would hitchhike to go to the beach. So I mean, uh, I, I yeah. just want to picture this kid. So I have another friend who um, same age time period would take his golf clubs and he would hitchhike to the golf course and didn't think it was weird. But now you look back on it as an adult, you're like, what were those parents, what were those adults thinking when they picked that kid up? And I think one thing they're thinking is this kid really wants to serve or this kid really wants to play golf. And I think that's an entrepreneurial trait of like when you have that, it's not like, oh, I want to go surfing, but I can't get there. It's like, no, I want to go surfing. Like, I'm going to get there. Did you did you realize that at the time that you were like had that focus and drive? Well, I just wanted to surf. But uh, that's how you <laughs> felt about it. But other kids wanted to surf, and then you know just to get there. Yeah, I mean, at, um, 
I never thought of it as being driven. I thought of it more as cat and mouse with my parents. For anybody who surfs, who grew up in Saratoga like I did. Um, Central it's, California. It's Central California. It's 25 miles to Santa Cruz. And so it was uh, uh, taking the bus and then hitchhiking. Uh, and then when I got my driver's license, I still wasn't allowed to drive over Highway 17, but oh. I would do it anyways. Um, and Your then, parents are going to see this. But. I know, I know. And um, one time I, uh, I did surf. I wasn't allowed to go surfing because there was um, shark sightings at Steamer Lane, which is where I typically went. And uh, so my mom told me, she's like, you're not allowed to surf. And I'm like, Mom, you know, come on, give me a break. Well, anyways, I went surfing despite my mom telling me not to. I wore tons of sunscreen. I dried out my wetsuit like there was no way I was going to get caught. <laughs> and, and that night um, at like 10 o'clock at night, my mom comes in. She's like, I know you went surfing today. And I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you made it worse. I made it way worse. She's like, I'm going to tell you someday when you're older how I found oh. out. She wouldn't even tell me how she, how she found out. So anyways, 20 years later, yeah. um, I think it was when I was getting married, she's like, oh, I never did tell you how I found out. I'm like, how the heck did you find out? She's like, there were grains of sand mm. in the bottom of the shower when I went to go take oh. my bath that night. You so didn't cover your tracks. I didn't cover my tracks. So for yeah. any of you out there... But I'll tell you what that did for me is that um, it made me realize that I, I wanted to go to UCSB or yeah. some school that, that was on the coast. That so was you like, once told me, and I don't know if you were kidding, that you only applied to schools that had a surf break. Is that true? That's, that's true. How many are there? Like, what are the schools? Well, there's a lot of schools on, in the coast of Santa So I applied um, uh, UC Santa Barbara, UC San Diego, Cal Poly, which is close enough. Um, oh, okay. Humboldt so State. I was thinking a literal surf break because even UCSD – it's not right there. I mean, I just I needed to live in a beach town. Okay, all right. Just Cal to Poly doesn't clarify quite for all of you around the world, our beach is right there, not UC San Diego. And it was it was that um, that goal in mind that um, that really forced me to um, or incented me to to work harder in high school so yeah. I could actually get in. Uh-huh. It was a lot easier to get into UCSB in 1990 than it is today. But, right. Uh, so I hear. Yeah. yeah, it's gotten hard. <laughs> so, so speaking of UCSB, so you get in, has a surf break. Um, you majored in sociology initially. Like, what did you think you were going to do with that degree? Well, um, before that, I, I asked around, and, um, and, and please, no offense to any sociology majors that might be in here, but I said, you know, what, what are some of the easier degree? majors? And I sociology heard, I heard was, sociology, uh, but, you know, uh, I heard that a few times, so I didn't even know what sociology was. I still don't. Um, so... <laughs> Anyways, I uh, sociology degree or uh, pursued for a couple of years, um, and then I ended up um, trying to challenge myself. Um, so I switched majors to aquatic biology. And what? So why? Do, other than you like the water and all that, why do you think you wanted to challenge yourself? Like, how did? How, what was there a switch that got flipped or something? Or so you're just you're just going to think that I'm shallow. Uh, you are you know, after no, I, I answer I the question, you. but um, the reason why I changed majors was so I could have one more year at UCSB. Uh, don't yeah. do that. I, uh, don't, don't take Craig's. Listen to everything else he said. <laughs> In hindsight, it was, um, uh, it was a really good move. Um, it, 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 it ended up setting, setting me up to be able to, um, to do something really cool after, after I graduated. Yep. Um, and it's funny, I look back on my career and how I, you know, how I just sort of went like this. I, I didn't actually know That's where I was going, everybody's, but everybody's career, you know, I look back, had I not, um, you know, had I not changed majors, um, to something more challenging and, right. um, I, w- I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you right, right. now. So. Yep. It's no just one of those decisions I look back on and it was a, a really good call. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what's hard about being at this point in the lives of the people in the room and the people watching is decisions can have monumental impact. We're going to talk about a chance meeting that you had in a second here. Um, before we get to that, so I mentioned you were on the surf team. And the reason I, I, I want to talk a minute about that is I'm always encouraging students to do things besides go to class. Go to class, study, but do things besides that whether it's joining an entrepreneurial club or a finance club or, or just a social club. So what did you get out of surf, at the surf team other than obviously you got tons of surf sessions in? But what are some of the other things as an adult you look back on and go, I didn't realize I was getting that at the time, but it helped me. Um, humility. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I thought I was a badass surfer and, you know, I rip and all that. And then I get on the surf team. And there, I think there's uh, maybe 12 or 15 people on the surf team. And I was the worst person on the team. Um, I surfed pretty well, but, I mean, the, the level of talent was, yeah. was extraordinary. So 
um, it was definitely a, a humbling um, experience. Um, so that, that's one thing that I took from it. Um, the other was just camaraderie and getting out of my comfort zone. I didn't know right. any of the other people yeah. on, on the team. And, you know, you're being stuck, you know, in a car for you know, 10 hours going down to San Diego and back and yeah. for contests. And um, so it, it, it definitely got me out of my comfort zone. Um, I also had never um, done any competitive surfing. And it was something that was always kind of on my, on my yeah. to-do list. And yeah. so it was nice to, to have that did experience. You, did you, because that's a big, pretty big team, like, and one of the best surf teams in the country. Did you guys win the nationals? We won 1995. We won the uh, NSSA nationals. Because of you, right? Of course, yeah. How does that work? Does everyone get to compete, or do you only certain people go into a heat? Or Um, everybody gets to compete. Okay. And if you if you make it out of your first heat, you go. It's it's elimination. So you just you keep surfing until you don't make it out. Okay. Um, But it's a it's a team sport. So um, there's. Um, you know, the points accumulate for the team. And right. so UCSB, uh, we did really good that year. It was either 94 or 95. Yeah, so if you Google like NCAA, or it's not NCAA, it's what you just said, the NS, whatever. NSSA. NSSA. By the way, I heard that your big wave surfer wasn't able to make it tonight, so thank you for inviting a small wave surfer to, to take her place. So. <laughs> you should see this guy surf. Um, he is not a small wave surfer. Um, but I think we've won 14 or something like that, national championships over like the last 30 years or so. I mean, it's like the dominance of UCSB on a national level is pretty yeah. incredible. It's weird because we have a beach right here. Um, so you, <laughs> I'm going to go to this next, uh, the first student's question in a second here. So you did the five and a half year plan that you mentioned, but with tongue in cheek, you said it was to stay longer. It's actually to really find a meaningful degree in pursuit in life. Um, so you, the year before you graduated, I'll probably get some of this story wrong, but you were back home and you ran into an old friend and there was some, there was something about that conversation that stuck with you so much that it changed your life. Tell, tell the, the folks about that. Yeah. The, um, so this was about one year before I graduated. So this would have been, um, this would have been probably June of, of 94. And I, I ran into an old friend. Um, she was back, um, back home for the summer from UCLA. And, um, and I asked her, like, oh, you know, what do you want to do when you graduate? And uh, she asked me the same thing. And, well, she asked me first. I'm like, God, I have no idea. I'm like, what do you want to do? She's like, well, I love L.A. I love Hollywood. I love the whole scene. She's like, she basically said, you know, I want to find, like, a really wealthy boyfriend or husband who's in the Hollywood business. And, you know, I just want to live in West L.A. Wow. Um, do you know if she did that? She did. Did she really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Say her name. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, Well, good for her. She accomplished her goal. So, um, so I I asked her the question first, and then she turned around and said, "You know, what do you want to do when you graduate in a year?" And I didn't say it out loud, but in in my mind, that was like the moment right there where I said to myself, "Like, I have no fucking idea what I want to do when I graduate, but whatever it is, it's the exact opposite of what you just described." Right. And. so said goodbye, and she went her way, and, and um, I got in my car literally that second. I drove to the public library um, in San Jose, and I said, you know, I hear there's applications for the Peace Corps here at the public wow. library. Um, I, I, and, I, 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 and all kidding aside, I think you should reach out to her. Maybe tone it down a little bit, but let her know, like, what an impact she had with her vapid... She's heard... Oh, has she? She's heard through the, yeah, through the parents. My mom's friends with her mom, so, oh. it, yeah. She, okay. She's right. heard about it. She knows. Yeah. She changed your life. <laughs> she with did. Her vapid yeah, statement. She a great influence on me. Yeah. We're going to talk about the Peace Corps in a second, but let's take the student's first question. Oh, hi, Craig. Um, what skills did you learn in the Peace Corps that directly helped you in your current business, and how did it just change you overall? I think that... <clears throat> so I, w- I was in the Peace Corps for... It's 27 months is, is the Peace Corps commitment. Um, probably the most valuable thing I learned um, was living in a living in a village with no running water, no electricity. Everybody's in thatched roof huts. Like exactly how you imagine the Peace Corps is is what my experience was, and um, and the families there were they were so close and so happy. Like if it was birthday parties or if it was weddings or if it was just a volleyball game against the vill- you know the neighboring village, um, that the entire village and community would come out. They would have so much fun and there was so much love. And these are the poorest people on the planet. And so I think for me, the single biggest take home that I got from that experience was that um, you don't need to have 
modern conveniences and, and wealth or money um, to to live, you know, a fulfilling, loving life. Um, so that was that was definitely hands down the um, the greatest thing that I took back from the Peace Corps. Um, not sure how relevant that is to you know how I became an entrepreneur, but. Um, I think more to your question that the the skills that I learned in the Peace Corps um, were really um, when you identify an impossible problem to solve. Uh, well, I don't, maybe not an impossible. When you identify a problem that is just so flipping hard, um, but if you think there's a way that you can solve it, whether it's you know, reinventing, you know, a computer code or, or uh, you know, something technical, database or analytics, or whether you're just trying to convince farmers to plant trees. Um, it, it just taught me to stay the course, to come up with, with a plan, with a vision, um, battle test it, make sure that I'm not, you know, crazy, that, you know, the problem that I think I can solve actually is solvable. Um, I don't think I could answer that, my, you know, figure that out myself, but... Um, uh, talking with other Peace Corps volunteers and administrators, like, God, you know, I really think that we can plant 100,000 trees in this village. This is my plan. Do you think it's crazy? You know, find the holes in the plan. Um, but a lot of those skills where I, um, it was, I was solving a different problem. I was trying to help reforest a village that had been completely deforested. Um, but I fast forwarded to when I started my first and then my second company, and, and that whole process was identical. Like, here's a problem, here's a goal. I'm totally driven, like, I'm going to pull this off no matter what it takes. So I'm going to, I'll walk through some of those specific things. So I met Craig a long time ago, and I, I sort of knew him socially, whatever. But when I finally heard your Peace Corps story, I was blown away. I know other people that were in the Peace Corps. I didn't do anything close to what you did. So I know you're humble about it, but we'll talk in a minute about what you did. It was pretty amazing. When you, when you decided to go into the Peace Corps, was that something your parents were supportive of? <laughs> and if not, then... This is an important lesson for folks um, that are kind of in their early 20s. How, do you, how did you deal with that? Because it's the first time in many of these folks' lives where their parents are going to give them advice, but they have to listen to their heart. It's, and before that, their parents told them what to do. So how did you deal with that? So for starters, when I, when I let my parents know that I had applied to the Peace Corps, um, um, they were not supportive. They thought it was um, a terrible idea, mm. um, concerned about you know my my safety, my health. And, but I think more specifically, it was, it was just expected, if not unspoken, that I would do one of two things, um, get a job right out of college right. and just start working my way up the corporate ladder or go right into grad school. And so it, um, it didn't match this, you know, this vision that my parents had for me. Um, I think one of the ironies is several years later, so it was the thing that my parents were, they were totally opposed to, and they tried talking me out of it unsuccessfully. And then years later, they would like introduce me to their friends, and they would. My mom would lead with it. Oh, here's my son who was in the Peace Corps. So it was the yeah, thing that cool. she was, you know, most proud of later on. Yep. Um, but I think you know, thank God I didn't listen to my parents. Right. Right then, yep. then and there. Um, and they'd say the same thing. Yep. Um, I think it's, you know, when you when you're uh, graduating college or getting close to, you know, it's it's time to make your own decisions. Yeah. And it's hard because your parents hopefully want the best for you. I think most parents want the best for their children. So it comes from the right place, but it could be the completely wrong advice. And we see this with entrepreneurs who want to go out and start a company or, or join a small company, and that scares their parents. Their parents are like, no, 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 get a job with an established company, as if that was safer. It's not, but the perception is that to them it's safer. So let's talk, let's talk a bit more in specific terms about your, your Peace Corps duties. So you, 27 months was your initial stint, but you stayed four years, right? Yeah, almost four years. So he yeah. extended his time there, which is kind of unheard of. We'll talk about what you did during that time. And you were in Paraguay? Yes. That's right. Um, and you, I, what I remember um, you saying to Can me Can I just was, say one thing about Paraguay, and that is when I got my letter, so I lived on a 6823 Del Playa right next to Dogship Park, and, um, and, I, and I'll never forget going to the mailbox getting my letter saying, you know, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Peace Corps, you're going to Paraguay. And I thought to myself... Where? Um, I thought to myself, <laughs> I'm like, okay, Paraguay, Uruguay. One of them's on the ocean and has surf. The other is in the middle of, of the continent. I'm pretty sure Paraguay's on the beach. So then I went in and looked at, at, a, at a map and realized that I was you got the doomed. other one. I was doomed. You got the other one. <laughs> did, you, did you get to the coast much? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, all my vacations were either to um, uh, to Brazil, took several trips to Brazil, nice. and then um, took surfing trips Chile. to Peru, Chile, um, Ecuador, yeah. uh, surfed in Galapagos, nice. did it all. Yeah, it hit some awesome. turtles, like, get out of the way, <laughs> snake the turtles. So, so, so you you're there four years, almost four years, um, and as I remember the story, correct me when I mess this up, but it wasn't just oh you're going to uh, I don't know. Madrid, and you know you're going to help some people. This is this was a country in need of a lot of help, to the point where the villagers that you worked with, Spanish wasn't their native tongue. English, of course, wasn't their native tongue. They had an indigenous Indian tongue that you had to learn before you could gain their trust, right? So didn't you spend like nine months or a year getting to the point where you could actually communicate with them? Yeah, I. Uh, so the um, indigenous language is Guarani, which is. Um, uh, native to Paraguay as well as some of the the border towns in Brazil, um, I spoke Spanish before I joined the Peace Corps. That's why they if you if you speak Spanish you're going to go to Latin America. If you speak French you're going to go to Africa. Um, it's just kind of how it works. Right. Um, so I was super excited to be able to go and speak Spanish, and and I got there and um, they had us all you know uh, try to speak a little Guarani, and I kind of had a knack for it. Um, and so they told me that I was going to one of the furthest, most re- remote villages where they didn't spek any spanish i had wow. to, um, I had to learn to speak uh, Guarani fluently. How long did it take where you felt like people were not saying what so the the litmus test for me about um, when you know when do you actually master a language um, it took about probably nine to twelve months before I was speaking Guarani in my dreams uh-huh. so that and I actually think that that, that accelerates your your uh, your language is when when you're speaking it in your sleep. Um, but yeah, it and it was funny. It was um, it was really hard for me to make any progress. Um, people liked me, and I liked them, and I had friends, and I was just sort of settling into the village and yep. doing a couple little projects, some gardening projects and things. Um, but the farmers that I was there to work with um, to, for on reforestation initiatives, they they wouldn't. Um, they really wouldn't start experimenting with me until it took about a year until I was fluent in, in Guarani. Which shows an incredible amount of patience on your part and dedication. Um, we're big in Paraguay. Do you want to say something in Guaranese to all the folks watching? Okay, I hope you didn't curse anybody. <laughs> if he cursed you, I'm sorry. Um, so you said there's about 200 families in that village. Um, so let's now dig into what you did. So you mentioned reforestation. That was that was kind of the big project, but how to get it done? So if I remember it right, you went to one of the wealthier landowners and you said, "Hey, man, it's really in your best interest to donate 100 acres for this um, uh, farm that you're going to build." It doesn't exist, right? This so point. this was ap- this was the project that I started after the Peace Corps. Oh, okay. Um, did I, so so help me with then. What was the evolution between? what you did in the village to the reforestation. So, so I was an agroforestry volunteer for the Peace Corps, and what that meant leveraging was... Leveraging your aquatics education here at Santa Barbara. Uh, yes, leveraging biology. all my aquatic biology. <laughs> um, well, I got to learn how things grow. And, there uh, you go. Um, so the village that I went into um, had been largely deforested um, just over a couple of centuries. Um, and the way that, that the land works there is that... Um, there'd be a family that maybe would have like 20 hectares and if they had four sons and four daughters for example um the son the four sons they would the the parents would divide the land equally so each son would end up with five hectares the daughters um you know would would marry get married and and you know move away um and then when i was there most of the the land holdings were between one to five hectares um, very, very small land holdings. And uh, most of the farmers there had started to, they got, I'll say addicted, but addicted to cash crops. And so big farm, uh, not pharma, but big ag, um, Monsanto and, and other, you know, giant multinational um, companies would come in and they would sell them. Um, so cotton was like, was the biggest curse because you had these farmers that historically were, were growing trees and food crops then they they sort of got tempted by the um, this this notion of of you know growing a cash crop like cotton, 
Um, and so they made the decision that they're instead of growing their own food, they're going to grow a cash crop and then yep. just buy all the food that they need. And there'll be so much money left over that right. they can then, you know, work their way up economically. Um, but that's not what happened. What, what ends up happening is, um, you know, the big companies come in, they offer these farmers that, that are illiterate credit for seeds and for mm. chemicals. Um, they offer to prepay, you know, pre-purchase, you know, part of the crop and, um, and it's really good for a year or two, but then you get into the cycle where you've depleted your soil and you're just, you really have to just load. And you owe you know, all chemicals. this money. And you're, and you're in debt and you owe money. My job was to come and try to reintroduce this notion of agroforestry, which is take, you know, a bare field, a barren field that's, that's had cotton for years, that's really depleted, take a couple of years to try to rebuild the soil using green manures and cover crops, um, and, um, and then starting to plant trees as well as crops. And, and so what we would do is we would come up with these long-range plans, such as um, if you have a field, you can plant, you know, for the first few years that you're growing trees, they're going to be small. They're not going to throw a lot of shade. You can still plant crops. You know, after two or three years, the trees are getting bigger. They're starting to throw a little shade. Then you can start growing coffee and bananas inside the partial shade. Mm-hmm. By the time the trees get so big and the canopy um, you know, really covers the, the field. You can't grow any food crops. Great. You can start harvesting logs. And, um, but then we would, we would teach about, um, forest management and how to selectively take certain trees and leave others. And, um, so that, that's really agroforestry. It's learning to, uh, basically grow food within the forest. In, in the case of my experience, it was grow a forest and then grow food right, inside right. the forest. Um, well, it was actually gain people's trust. Well, and that was the hardest part, was right. gaining people's trust. Um, my favorite story from, from the Peace Corps, I'll just tell it really quick, is um, I think my big breakthrough, um, and this was after I was, was able to speak Guarani, um, I, had a, I would hold um, workshops and meetings. I'd have a, there was a little school in the village. And, um, and so I was, I was doing a workshop for, um, um, for moms. Um, it was a gardening, you know, gardening class, and, but also trying to promote the agroforestry. And, um, and there were young girls, there were, you know, the, the old ladies and, and all ages in between. Um, and I said something that, you know, you throw stuff against the wall until you see what sticks. And, and, and so I posed some questions. I, um, I turned to one of the um, elderly ladies in the audience and I said, when you were a girl, how far did you have to, um, how far did you have to walk to get firewood? And she's like, oh, just, you know, right across the street, you know, just 30 seconds. And then I turned to her daughter and I said, okay, when you were a girl, how, how far did you have to walk? And she's like, oh, you know, the equivalent of maybe a quarter mile or a half mile. And then I turned to her daughter. Um, the young girls were, were um, charged with uh, collecting firewood. And I said, well, how far do you have to walk? And she's like, oh, I've got to walk over a mile to that one little patch of forest where we can get firewood. And so then I would just pose the question, so where's her daughter? How far is her daughter going to have to walk someday, you right, know, 10, right. 20 years from now? And, and that was, it was like, aha moment. You know, that was really the pitch for, let's plant some trees. Mm. That's nice. So we're spending a lot of time talking about the Peace Corps because uh, it, there's so much in that story that's entrepreneurial. Um, just that fact right there that you were testing out messaging to your audience, in this case, it was it was um, women that you were helping with gardening class, but it could have been investors, it could have been employees, it could have been customers, it could have been prospects, uh, and that's what we do, right? We sort of iterate on our story as we read as we read the reaction that we get from other people, and we keep the bits that work, and we toss out the bits that don't work. And you were doing that. You did a lot of other entrepreneurial things. So let's get back to the hundred acres. When did when did that come into the picture? Were you convinced someone who really should have just told you to screw yourself? Like you're asking them to give away a hundred acres. Um, well, and the reason they didn't tell me to go screw myself is because the girl who said that she walked a mile to go get firewood, she was going on to, um, my, my village was surrounded by a couple of large land holdings. These were families that, um, that moved to Paraguay, um, in the late thirties, early forties from Germany. And Mm -hmm. they, they bought up lots Mm -hmm. and lots of land. Um, and, uh, but anyways, the, the girls were all, were going into the, into their land to get the firewood. Um, and people would go into their land to steal trees and kill yep. animals and whatnot. Right. Um, so they were incented. They, it wasn't just out of the goodness of their heart. No, but you were. had to find, I mean, don't sell yourself too short here. You had to find the reason for them to say yes, right? It wasn't yeah. just to be, to help. I'm sure there was, a, hopefully there was a bit of a, a philanthropic 
a bone in their body, but, it was, but you also went to the core of like, hey, look, if you want to stop this poaching or if you want to stop this trespassing, you need to set aside some land. Yeah, so leading up to that, so I, I think my first, my first year was about getting integrated into the village, learning the language, gaining trust, having some early small successes with projects yep. that then enabled me to work on bigger projects. My second year in the Peace Corps was just absolute magic. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. It was, um, it was the, the quintessential postcard Peace Corps experience. And what I mean by that was um, I, I was... So I cheated a little bit in that I, I would always help them, the farmers, uh, with some fast-growing trees. Um, and so they would see, like, instant results. There were trees that we were planting, Paraiso Gigante, for the, for the geeks out there, um, that you could um, you'd get firewood in two years, you could get a saw log in eight years. And mm. so they were seeing how fast these trees were, co- were yep. growing. Yep. But the, the magic that happened was um, the farmers that I was working with closely, they, on their own, were going and talking to neighbors that I hadn't met with yet and they were starting to they were starting to train their the neighbors and people and from other other villages right. about these techniques that we were doing which for them you know to, you know for us it's just like really simple organic sort of farming um, but but you know um, cover crops and green manures and working with trees was was new technology sure. and, and so um, they were excited they were seeing results they were starting to tell others um, and so that's what that's what gave me the, the spark was I, there was five or six farmers in particular that I was working with that were, um, they were leaders. Um, they, they had a lot of passion in teaching other people about what they were learning. And, yep. and um, so that's what I wanted to bottle up and scale yep. was because in, in. So they in, were your evangelist, right? Same thing in business. You have to find those early customers that just get it. They love your product. They go out and talk about it. Exactly, and, and what was what was differentiated in this approach was you have to understand that um, in Paraguay there's um, what they have what they call agriculture extensionists. So these are people that go to college uh, and or technical school. They they're basically like farm engineers. You know, they technically they're really really good. They come out into these small villages um, with their really nice Toyota trucks. Yeah, Nobody yeah. in my car had, you right. know, a couple people had ox carts. That's about it. Right. Um, so they come in these really nice cars. They're dressed really well. And they get in front of a bunch of villi- illiterate village farmers that don't speak Spanish. And then they start speaking Spanish. Mm. Hola, senor. You've got to yeah. do this. You've got to do that. And right. so um, it wasn't peer-to-peer. And so I saw an opportunity just in these five or six farmers yep. that... It was peer-to-peer. They could teach other farmers in Guarani, in their native tongue, about ways to improve the soil and grow more food. Uh, and so that was the spark, uh, was to, when I finished Peace Corps, I just thought, you know, God, if I could, if I could get a plot of land, um, we could make a big demonstration farm here in our village and start bussing in villagers, like, from all over the country. Like, why not, you know? And so that's what, that's what extended your tenure there. So that's what extended my, my tenure was um, I started a nonprofit organization. So I, um, I found a, a landowner, one of the large landowners, who donated 100 acres, approximately 100 acres, um, and then pretty much laid down um, a map for how to, how to start you know, a, a demonstration farm, right? Uh, and in uh, a full-on nonprofit organization, there's a lot of moving parts. There was, um, you know, getting the link. Well, first of all, I had to like talk the the landowner. Uh, it was like my first sale. Like, you know, will you sell me a hundred acres for nothing? Right. Um, the way I, to your earlier question, the way that I pitched it to them was, if this thing works, nobody's going to go into your land in the future and steal your wood. Right. Um, and that was that was pretty compelling. Um, and then I also um, had to uh, learn how to administer a nonprofit organization. I knew I needed to raise money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yep. Um, so it, it, you know, it took a village, um, and I and I had a lot of help. I so, but I want, let's talk about some of the help you had. So if I get this right, wrong, correct me. But I, as I remember it, you got ten of your Peace Corps compatriots to take their six thousand dollars severance, which is sort of like their bonus for two years of not getting paid very much. You got them to donate that money to your nonprofit, and then you got them to stay three months extra. Yeah, so that's was, like sixty grand back in ni- mid nineties. It was like, 54000 54, So every, you, you kept your six? No. <laughs> um, when you, at the, I don't know if it's still the case, but um, 
we, when you finish the Peace Corps, if you get through the 27 months, you get a check for $5,400. Uh, from the from the United States Around Treasury, so. $200 a month for 27 months. It's called your readjustment allowance, and um, and I um, I learned how to I guess raise money for the first time. Um, I went to several Peace Corps volunteers that were finishing their service the same time as me, and these volunteers were also agroforestry extensionists. Right, right. Um, and I'm like, and I just said. I mean, just like many of you someday will will experience when you have that idea for your first company and you're going in, you're pitching your five buddies to be co-founders. I mean, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. It was nonprofit, but yep. it was the same thing. Yep. I like, hey guys, I've got the, the greatest idea in the world. You know, this is what it is. And and then I asked, you know, there's probably 15 people there, and I'm like, here's here's what you got to do. You got to write a check for fifty four hundred dollars. Um, if you can, or, you know, less, if, if you can't afford that and you got to sign up for, you know, three months to help me build a, you know, build a house, build a classroom, get the farm together, so on and so forth. Yep. Now is the, the farm still going? Cause I know about 10 years ago, it was still operational. Is the farm still happening? It is. Yeah. Um, so think about this folks, this is like 30 years later, tw- uh, 25, years? 22, 22 or 22. Dude, you're old. It's. It's almost thirty. This years. is 1999, So okay, so it, yeah, 20, twenty years. Yeah, twenty plus years later. No, I'm, I beg your pardon. Nineteen ninety-seven. You can't even do math. I know. I've been retired for like a month. I've been partying pretty good. I can't do math anymore. So <laughs> I'm going with thirty years. You guys can do the math. No, but the point is, it's multi-decades that this endeavor that you did while you were the age of the folks in this room, it's continued to help generation, like multiple generations of folks. Um, that, that, you know, you could have gone down there, done two years and blown out and really not made much of an impact at all. So this is a good point for me to make clear that I heard this story from Craig and I said, this is somebody I want to invest in. I invested in HD Insights, which was a company we'll get to in a second. I'd already heard about his first successful exit at Noza. But when, when somebody can tell this story and all the, the, all the adversary they had to overcome to get that farm up and running, let alone to create a sustainable business that lasted multiple decades, that's the kind of person you want to invest in. So let's sort of end the story a little bit by talking about the million-dollar grant that you got. How did that come about? I mean, that's, you're still about 24 years old at this point, right? You're very young, and you're really believing in this thing passionately, and you got somebody to write a huge check. Yeah, so... <clears throat> It's funny just hearing you talk about that. You're like, I, who did that? I'm thinking of the parallel between bootstrap startups versus venture back startups. Right. In, in this case, it was, you know, do I want to do a bootstrap nonprofit or do I want to do, you know, a funded nonprofit? And um, again, we wa- I wanted to, I wanted to go fast. I, there was, there was a moment in time. There was this opportunity where I had these farmers that were willing to, yep. to go all in with me. So um, I ended up writing. My first, actually, the first money I tried to get was from USAID, um, and the government's like, nah, yeah, we don't right. want to fund it. And then, um, so then I started researching foundations, and I found this, this there was a Swiss foundation, the Schmidt Foundation. This was a foundation started by the family that, um, that held all the patents or owned the patents to asbestos. Oh. So um, they made a lot of money. A lot, of people, a lot di- of people. A lot of people died, but they also... Um, uh, were very th- philanthropic, and they supported um, uh, agroforestry initiatives in, in Latin America. Um, so filled out their application, and you know how much funding do you want? And, you know, a million dollars over three years, and sent it in. Um, now sending it in was a pain in the ass because I actually had took me like you know a day and a half to get to a post office in Paraguay where I could actually send it in. Um, we got them. We got a million dollars. Wow! It was like nine hundred and eighty thousand or something like that. But we got a million dollar three year grant um, to basically um, build out all the infrastructure and, and do the programming for the wow. first couple of years. It's unbelievable. It's so and, impressive. But um, what's um, just one quick sort of end note there? And um, so here we are, twenty two years later, and um, and it's evolved. Uh, the the organization has evo- has evolved quite a bit. Um, when I started it, it was, there were, um, I think eight farmers from my village, all men that, um, worked their fields during the day. And then they would come to work for me for a few hours. Whenever we had groups coming in from other villages, these farmers, they were the extensionists. The, the visitors never saw me. They didn't hear me talk. It was, um, and then fast forward 
22 years, the, in, in my village, Santo Domingo, um, there were a few women that were just exceptional leaders. And they were just, I, I always knew they were going to um, really do something special. And so over the course of time, the, the farm went from being all about, you know, men, men farmers teaching men farmers to we started implementing programs um, for women and for girls. And um, so fast forward 22 years, the entire organization is run by women. Right on. And probably 90% of the, of the clients or people that are coming to, to sessions are women from other villages. Um, they're learning um, different trades. I mean, one of the first things we did was we taught women how to build um, silos to store grain. Um, just something so simple as to right. be able to store grain for you know a couple months longer could make a big difference. Yep. And so, um, you know, I never set out to to found an organization that would be you know run by women for women and and really have a lasting difference. And um, it's just interesting. Uh, you could say the same thing about software companies that have been around for thirty or forty years. What they were doing thirty years ago might look very different to, than what they're doing now. Yeah, for sure. If they're going to survive, you have to change. You have to evolve and morph. Yeah. Um, have you been back? Uh, I haven't been back. Um, Dude, go back. My You're wife, retired. My wife has been back. Um, I know. I could go back now. Um, my wife has been back, but I haven't, haven't been back. All right. If you go back, you have to take me. Let's take the next student's question. Hi, Craig. I was wondering, uh, when it came to creating your nonprofit organization, what were some of the biggest challenges and how difficult did you find it building your team and uh, recruiting the right people? Great question. Um, so recruiting the team was easy, and that's just because I, I was surrounded by um, a lot of like-minded people that were willing to put in you know, time, treasure, and talent, really. Um, the I will say that it's been more difficult for me to recruit teams for my companies than it was for the nonprofit. Um, what was? Can you repeat the rest of your question? Sorry. I think you said like what other big challenges did you have to overcome? So it was amazing how many people in in positions of of influence thought that my idea was a terrible idea. Um, this idea of you know getting a big chunk of land and building a farm and getting it funded it's crazy um, in fact uh, I went to the Peace Corps with it this is you know Peace Corps in Paraguay and I pitched it to Peace Corps initially like hey here's what I want to do let's partner you know give me some money give me a truck whatever. Right. and the Peace Corps is like no it'll never work terrible idea we know better and I heard that over and over and over again and um, there were times when I'm like, God, maybe they're right. You know, maybe this won't work. But yep. I think just my mindset was I knew I think I knew they were wrong. And I think part of me wanted to, like, prove them wrong. But I just I knew I could I knew I could pull it off and, and have some level of success. Um, so a few years later, by the way, once the thing was up and running, the Peace they Corps called the Peace Corps called us and program. said, can we pay you to have you train all of our Peace Corps volunteers? Wow. So it also became a uh, training center for, for the Peace Corps. Oh, I thought you pulled up now, it has a big sign that says started by the Peace Corps or something. Nope. Talk to us about how, explain a little bit, do a better job of, than I did on explaining what the company is doing today, uh, and talk about what, you know, where this is going in the next five years. I really feel like the company's at an inflection point where it's just, I'm on the board, so I kind of know. It's really going <laughs> like this. Yeah. Um, so HG's, um, we just celebrated our ninth anniversary at HG, um, but going back to, uh, to 2010, um, when, so we had this, this code that I talked about from NOSA, we didn't have a company yet, and that's when, um, you probably talked about market validation, have you, are they market validated out yet? In other uh, classes, so okay. you could talk about it here. Um, so I, I started by doing what I'll call just market validation. Um, where I had a few different ideas that we could use our, our code um, to go in like three or four different directions, all very different. Um, so that's when I would go and talk to pr prospective customers. And the one that, um, that I really liked was this idea of, I, I knew that we could identify all the software products and hardware products that, com that companies were using. I, 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 I knew we could automate an approach to that. Um, and so the thing that really got me excited was um, I met with I met with a gentleman, a mentor 
um, from the, from the space or from, from the industry. And, and, um, he had started a company in 1969, quick story, but everyone likes the story. So in 1969, there was a company founded called computer intelligence. So what, what this company did in 1969, they, they started a call center and they started calling every big company in America Mm -hmm. and they would ask them, do you have an IBM mainframe? Okay. So in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you can see pictures of this in like an encyclopedia, but um, literally mainframe computers were the size of city blocks. Like yeah. if you had one the size of this room, like that was a big deal. Calculator. Um, and so they would call companies and say, do you have a mainframe computer? Um, no, we do not. Or yes, we do. They would write down the answers. They then went to other computer semiconductor companies of, of the time, Intel, Hewlett Packard, Commodore, um, Xerox, whomever, and said, hey, how would you like to buy an IBM customer list? Right. And so this is 1969, this started. Um, the gentleman who told me this story, Hugh Tejan is his name, who started the company Computer Intelligence. In 2010 or 2011, he had sold the company years prior. This company was like 40 years old. And they were still doing the same thing wow. the same way. Now, they were tracking a lot more than just IBM. They were tracking hundreds, if not thousands, of different um, technology vendors and products. Um, but they were using a call center. They had like 500 people wow. um, in a room. And they would just call companies, you know, hi, I'd like to do a survey. I'll give you, send you a Starbucks gift card if you, you know, take 20 minutes. And then they would start going through a bunch of questions. What kind of accounting software do you use? What kind of hardware do you use? What kind of laptops, desktops, and yep. customer support software? They would just go down the list until the person on the other end just <laughs> uncle. cried, uncle, stop. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's when I realized, I'm like, okay, there's, there's really a market. People are paying for this. It's been around for a long time. Um, and so I'm not trying to invent a new type of product, I'm, but I think I can invent a new way to build that. Yep. That's way more efficient. Um, the biggest expense before was the call center, you know, yeah, 500 sure. people and, um, and you don't get that much data. You know, even the best call center agents can only make so many calls in a day. Right. And I thought to myself, okay, well, job postings, there's like tens of millions of job postings. And in job postings, it says, you know, come work at Invoca. You must have experience with Salesforce CRM software. It's like, oh, maybe companies are just out there, you know, openly and innocently just sending out all these little signals about what kind of software they're using. And I think I got a way to go and collect all that. And so, um, that's exactly what we did and hired some, um, some, some really phenomenal um, data engineers and data scientists and, um, and had a great team. And we've spent the last nine years building what, what is now has become the largest collection of information regarding the, world, uh, you know, the world's use of technology right. at businesses. We don't track consumers or households, but we track about um, 10 million companies worldwide. And we identify up to about 20,000. We track about 20,000 different software products and which, of, which companies across the world are using those. Right, which is proven to be quite valuable information. And it goes to, um, you know, uh, market, marketing teams use it, sales teams yeah. use it. And um, it's been wonderful. Yeah, and you're retired, so I'm jealous. Two, two more questions. If you had five minutes with Surf Team Craig... What would you say to him? Um, a few things. The first thing I would say is don't try to be a pro surfer. You're not that good because <laughs> they all think they're really hot. You're not that good. Um, and I think the other thing t- would be um, to, to hold on to your passions. Like don't bi- – when- it's so easy when you start a company or even um, if you don't start a company, but if you join a founding team right. or an early team – um, I mean, it's, it's gnarly. I'm 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, week after week after week, you're not getting paid or you're barely getting paid. Like it's hard. And I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of people lose their passions when they, when they get into the, you know, yeah. into the gauntlet there. So I, I guess, you know, my, my message to this surf team would be, you're not good enough to go pro and, <laughs> but don't lose your passions. Like it's really important for work-life balance. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's funny, a lot of, um, uh, my peers in town, they're like, why are you retiring, man? What do you, aren't you going to be bored? And don't you want to start another company? And I'm right. like, 
dude, don't you have hobbies? Right, <laughs> right. Just think of you had all the time in the world to do them. Well, that feeds into my last question. So I remember about 10 years ago, you said to me, I want to be a philanthropist when I grow up. You're grown up now, you're retired. So how are you going to fulfill this dream of philanthropy? Um, well, I, so I know enough to be dangerous when it comes to philanthropy, um, just how it works. And um, so I think for me, there's, there's a, couple of, a couple of causes that I care deeply about um, and things that I would want to both put in my time and my money. Um, it's, it's really hard as, um, when you're trying to raise money for a nonprofit. I mean, it's hard. There's yeah. so many great places for people to spend their money other than sending it to a charity. And, yep. um, so I, I think in addition to um, putting in money, I think I want to volunteer uh, with some of the, the harder parts of fundraising, which is like asking people. Like mm -hmm. typically if, if you're trying to raise, like when UCSB raises, you know, $100 million for their centennial campaign or whatnot, um, you know, it's not, it's not the chancellor alone going and talking with well-heeled alums. It's, there's probably 20 or 30 or 40 um, volunteers that are all deeply connected to UCSB. And, and they have a really, really hard job. Yes, there's staff to support them, but yep. their job is to help identify who out there in the world like, might care about you know, this institute or this program or this cause and you know who's willing to try to cultivate them to, to bring them closer in and who's willing to step up and ask them you right. know john would you give a million dollars to no. the centennial campaign um so that's what that's what i want to do i want to put so are you formally volunteering to raise money for ucsb uh i'm just kidding no because <laughs> i know where your passions lie no i'm just kidding um i haven't been asked <laughs> um by the way, people don't donate because they care about a cause. People donate typically because they were asked. Um, and another twist on that would be, you know, you don't get what you're worth. You get what you negotiate. So right, right. Um, it just, I, you know, there's certain things that I just want to do that, that I think matter. And uh, my kids are, um, um, they're 17 now. They'll, they'll be graduating soon and going on, you know, college and so I think it's important for them to see as well that right um, when you know when when you've had good luck and good fortune it's even more important to, to give back and yes yeah. I've been joking about you being retired but I know that you have plans to give back in lots of ways and giving back with your time is often the most expensive way to give back it's kind of sometimes easier to write a check so we'll have you back uh, in a few years and you can tell us all about all your philanthropic <laughs> successes thank you Craig yeah Thanks, John, for the introduction and uh, warming up the crowd, only as, as only you could do. So I have a video to show real quick, so bear with me, and then we'll go into our presentation. To me, one of the things that I hope every employee gets out of Invoca is a sense of learning and exploration and the opportunity to learn more and build their own skill set and their own expertise and really this idea of being masters in their craft. We have a set of people that have lots of diverse interests who come from different backgrounds and are really, really passionate about what they do. We work with enterprise customers like Dish Network, University Hospitals, Frontier Communications, and SunTrust Bank to help their marketing teams understand what insights they can glean from those and how they can deliver a better customer experience. I've worked at other SaaS companies before and it's a little more corporate, it's a little more challenging to be innovative. Invoca has given me the ability to be creative with how I support our customers. Having that shared goal and shared mission to make our customers wildly successful is really important to all of us. Continuous improvement really doesn't work without risk and embracing failure. Innovation very often can result in failure. You're going to try new ideas that don't work out. So without that comfort level, that safe space where people can take those risks, those tiny micro actions that really add up over time don't happen. I think Invoca is really a great place to start your career, especially right after college. We have team meetings and we'll have the VP of sales or marketing come sit in on them and we get to pick their brains and learn all about how the business operates in different departments and roles. 
What's been really awesome is having supportive managers here. They're very supportive in enabling me to grow my career, and I think that's been kind of a focus, is that we're always thinking, you know, what's next? You know, where, where can we learn more and grow yourself as a person, but also contribute to the company as a whole? We do a great job of celebrating wins, and Invoca hosts a lot of fun company events that bring us together just outside of work. That allows us to invite our families, and it makes it easy to be inclusive, but also have that personal time. From a work-life balance standpoint, I'd say the leadership team is extremely aligned. I've got two young kids, both born while I've been here. I've been here for six years, so I've gone through that whole process of not having kids to suddenly having two. And it's been great from a company perspective. We just really feel like the company rewards you for success, not time and materials. So you get to do your job where you are, from where you are, with the benefit of being rewarded for great work. For me personally, what I think about in my career is what opportunities do I have to learn and develop myself. And that's why I'm so excited about what we do as a company, is we're really taking that to heart for every employee who works at Invoca. Cool. So that's a little bit just about Invoca, our company, and our culture. One thing that's pretty awesome about that video is I would say about 60 to 70% of the people you saw in that video are UCSB alumni. And over 60% of our company uh, is from UCSB. And this is my third time presenting at TMP. Uh, I personally have hired two people out of this program. Uh, Pedro, who's here joining me, uh, started with Invoca before I started and came from this program as well. So all of you in the audience really helped feed uh, that company and that culture that we have. So you know a little bit about our company and the people that work there. What is Invoca? So think about a purchase you've made recently. Think about a purchase that was over $100. Okay, maybe a $500 purchase. Um, and think about the journey that you took when doing research for that. So you probably fired up your laptop. Um, if you're my age, you might have used Bing. Some of you guys might have used Google to do a search. Uh, maybe you got an email from a vendor. Uh, you looked at something on your, on your cell phone, Instagram, uh, and then eventually went to the website and purchased. Or... It was what we call a considered good or purchase. So I imagine there's a handful of people in here who have student loans. When you graduate, you're going to possibly want to refinance. Are you just going to do that online, or are you going to pick up the phone and dial? So if you pick up the phone and dial, that creates, if that goes, there we go, a digital divide. So you had this whole journey prior to picking up the phone, and then you pick up the phone and talk to the contact center. And that creates a divide. So what we do at Invoca is we bridge that digital divide. Okay. Does that all make sense? You guys kind of understand what we're doing there? All right. That might sound niche or like a feature. Okay, that's kind of cool. But how do you build a company around that? So let's go back to why this is, this is valuable. Let's go back to that student loan. Has anyone clicked on one of those ads on Google you search something, you see like the first three or four search results. Have you ever noticed where it says add next to it? Has anyone noticed that before? You guys ever click on those? No? Really? Do you, can you guess how much it costs if you clicked on one of the loan ads? How much that company paid for that click? Any guesses? Just for the click. $20? 20? That's a pretty good guess. That's a pretty good guess. So marketing's expensive. How expensive? If you search for a loan and you click on one of the top uh, paid ads, that company just paid $45 for you to click on it, whether you make a purchase or not. So insurance, $55. Mortgages, $47. Attorneys, $47. Uh, one of the most highly sought after ads is like an injury attorney in like Waco, Texas, because they know if you're looking for an injury attorney in Waco, Texas, you probably have a case and they want it and they spend like $400 for that ad. So marketing is incredibly expensive and that's why, uh, that's one reason why our customers value us. And then customer experience. How many people have been ready to purchase, called in just to hit an IVR and say like press one for English, press two for Spanish, are you a new customer, returning customer, and then you just get completely fed up and eventually get to the place you're trying to go. So with our software, what you're able to do is customize that journey. So if I have something in my shopping cart and I pick up the phone, I can go straight to a person to purchase, right? I can go to a top salesperson for that product. And so that's the reason why companies uh, like T-Mobile, Dignity Health, Allstate, 
leverage Invoca. So four out of the top 10 US mortgage lenders, two of the top four US wireless carriers, and three of the top US cable providers leverage Invoca. It's awesome. We're headquartered here in Santa Barbara. We actually just took over the Sonos building uh, on State Street. So we've got a great office down there. We're hiring in sales. Uh, I believe there's a whole list of other roles, technical support, um, product specialists. Um, and I brought a couple people with me. I apologize. So I myself, I graduated UCSB 10 years ago, 2008. Uh, I was a uh, Biz econ major, and ended up having an emphasis in accounting. A lot of classes in this room. At that time, they didn't have TMP, uh, but like I said, we do have a lot of alumni from the TMP program. Uh, Catherine Jordan actually caught the bug that's going around, but she just joined uh, less than six months ago, class of 2018. And then I have Pedro to talk about his journey. What's up? My name is Pedro. I'm on the product team at Invoca. I graduated from UCSB in 2017. Um, I studied linguistics with an emphasis in speech and language technology. Um, when I graduated, uh, it's, you know, it's, as you guys know, it's really hard to find a job, uh, especially staying local in Santa Barbara. So I actually started on the sales team, uh, spent about a year and a half on the sales team as a sales development representative, cold calling uh, to put ramen on the table. And after about a year and a half, I moved to the CS organization and then moved to product. Um, Invoke is a sweet gig. It's a really cool place to work. Again, like we have so much flexibility with how we can do our jobs. We have laptops. We can work remote. Um, it's a really cool experience being able to work at a company that's filled with UCSB alumni. Um, highly recommend anyone apply. We're going to be out in the back, so afterwards, if you have any questions, uh, where you can get started, if your experience would be relevant, happy to chat. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.